There is ideation. There is actually a process between coming up with a good idea and a bad idea. There are principles for good ideas and principles for bad ideas. And it's great to have bad ideas. The more bad ideas you have, the more good ideas you'll have. In the same way, the more bad songs a songwriter writes, the more hits they're gonna have. There is a process of ideation, of coming up with ideas and finding the right ideas and testing the right ideas. That's Daniel Priestley. And if he sounds familiar, it's because this is his second episode on Secret Leaders. The first was way back in 2017 on just our ninth episode. As a cheeky refresher, Daniel is prolific. He's the best-selling author of books like Key Person of Influence, 24 Assets, and Oversubscribed. He's a lecturer and an excellent teacher of entrepreneurship. You'll hear some of his gems today, which I wager will make you a better business builder. We wouldn't get him on unless he practices what he preaches. He's also the co-founder and CEO of consulting agency Dent Global. Now, we don't have people back again for no reason. Earlier this year, he published a new book, Scorecard Marketing. He's working on a couple of new book projects, and he's also launched a new business, Score App. It's a self-service platform that simplifies quiz funnel marketing. Imagine asking your website visitors to take a relevant quiz, like how healthy their brain is, rather than just asking people to leave an email address for you to contact them on some random newsletter. I did exactly that at my company Heights. It leads to more engagement, more quality leads, and it's flying. He launched it in 2020, and it's already grown into a $20 million business. I think there are more lessons in this episode about building business than we've had in a while. I hope you like it. It's time for round two. What do you think is the one thing that AI is going to give humanity that no one's talking about? There's a few things that not nobody's talking about, but not enough people are talking about. Um, and I would say that the first one is digital royalty. So what I mean by digital royalty is if, they, if you look back over the last 10,000 years, humans tend to organize themselves into a feudal society where you have a small group of leaders who have absolutely everything um, and a very, very large group of people who have absolutely nothing. Um, and uh, people haven't drawn a comparison between artificial intelligence and soil, and I mean physical soil. So if you if you take physical soil, actual soil, dirt, land, um, it is an artificial intelligence. You put a prompt in called a seed. That seed knows exactly what to do. It grows a tree, and then it bears fruit, and humans are not really required between planting the seed and picking the fruit. Nature just knows what to do. So if we think about this as a automation process where humans just simply put something in and then out comes something of value. We look at the societies that came up and, and sort of uh, surrounded that as the primary mechanism for making value and they were all feudal societies. So it was basically a king who owns all the land uh, with some dukes who were very good at uh, organizing labor and then plebs or serfs who were on the land. Now, what we're probably going to have here is we're going to have a society that goes back to this kind of structure if we're not careful. I think we're going to see a lot of 10 people companies that have 100 billion of revenue. Um, so we're going to see a lot of businesses that have 10 million revenue per person, massively automated, massive leverage, massive scale. In the last, say, 10, 15 years, there was very famously Instagram that had 13 people at the time of acquisition for a billion of value. What we're going to see going forwards is you know, a, a number of companies that have just very, very small headcount and artificial intelligence doing a vast majority of the value creation. And we're gonna see these businesses that have hundreds of millions uh, in revenue with a very, very small headcount. We're gonna see a lot more of that. 
I massively agree for what it's worth. Like we've got a target at heights of getting to 1 million pounds of revenue per employee. And the fact that that's even possible in a company that's got a vertically integrated supply chain with physical product is because of AI, it's because of automation. It's, you know, a company like ours wouldn't normally be able to do that. It's much more set up for tech. The fact that we can isn't because we're brilliant. It's actually just because of the time we live in. Yeah, exactly that. And um, when we see... AI start to eat the very expensive jobs as well. Uh, We're going to see some businesses that become hugely scalable, hugely profitable, and those businesses are going to start gobbling up everything. What are are your three favorite books you think people should read or have influenced your life? And you're not allowed to name any of yours. Well, I am going to name mine. And the reason I'm going to say this is not because people should read mine, but the books that have influenced my life have been the ones that I've written And for that reason, I always encourage people to try and write a book. And I always say to people, the book that changes your life the most is not one you read, it's one that you write. And in particular, it's one that you give away free copies. I think one of the most uh, successful strategies that I've ever come across is the ability to give away books um, uh, to the people you would love to meet. I find that very inspiring because I've always wanted to write a book. I've actually had a conversation with you in the past about this. Briefly, you probably won't remember it. I've been asked by... Penguin Random House and, you know, these guys and that HarperCollins and like all of the different guys at different times to write a business book because of Secret Leaders. And every time I've said no, because I've got lots of friends who are professional authors and I know how much work it takes. Equally, you are one of the only people I know who is a successful, independently self-published author. And although the advances are, are quite decent, I've always found it quite an interesting model versus yours. Yours is really the classic entrepreneurship model of I'm going to back myself fully. So take us through the two different models. What do you think the pros and cons are? What should people do? So I'm published with a big publisher called Wiley, which is a big hundred year old traditional publisher. And I'm also published with an independent publisher called Rethink Press. I originally published or some of my books are with Wiley. It's very difficult to give away your own books at scale. Uh, If you want to give away books, giving them away with a published contract is really hard. And the reason for that is that the advance that they give you is exactly that. It's an advance. It is an advance against sales. And what they want from you is a, a salesperson. They want you to sell books. The whole goal of a big publisher is to sell copies of books at full retail value. Whereas an independent publisher, they are normally there to support the goals of the author and they don't care whether you make retail sales so long as you're happy as as the author. They're looking after you and they're trying to meet your goals. So a few things happen when you publish with a big retail publisher, uh, sorry, big traditional publisher, what they're going to do is they're going to push you down the path of writing something that their data tells them will sell. They're going to try and get you to fill a large gap in the marketplace. They want you to do something generic and wide, whereas you may want to write something really specific and niche. Uh, so they, they won't encourage that. They won't sign you for that sort of a book. When you then give books away, they're going to say, oh, we'll give you a 10% discount if you buy hundreds of them off the £10 cover price. Whereas a, a independent publisher will say, we'll give you cost plus uh, a small margin for us to organize it. So uh, you can give away books much more cheaply. What I discovered is that it is so time consuming trying to sell a book. To convince someone to part with £10 to buy your book is so much of your time, right? It's a ridiculous commitment of time. But the opposite is like going out there to give books away and to say, hey, I'd love to meet you. Here's a copy of my book. Or you're the type of person I wish I had time to talk to. Here's a copy of the book. So for example, my latest book, Scorecard Marketing, I printed up 10,000 copies of that and I just gave them away to thousands, uh, well, 10,000 
entrepreneurs, you know, essentially any entrepreneur who fits my target market for Score App is exactly the type of person I would love to have a cup of coffee with. I can't have 10,000 cups of coffee with people. So I just give away 10,000 copies of the book and then the business scales off the back of that. So, you know, it's a, it's a different strategy. It's a different mindset. I've done both, uh, but my preference is actually uh, the non-traditional independent publisher. Got it. Great answer. Thank you. It is a time-consuming process though, right? As in, you know, I suppose you have to be very disciplined. You're going to be spending time reading. I would just turn that into writing time. You're going to spend time commuting. Just pull out the notes app on your phone and just write some chapters or some introductions to chapters. It's actually quite relaxing to, to write. It is cathartic. It's therapeutic. It's a great meditation uh, when you actually write down your thoughts and your ideas. It put, takes you into a different world. And it, if you've been stressed about other things, it actually takes you into a different project. If it takes you 18 months, so what? It takes you 18 months, but you get a book at the end of it. You get a new significant asset. You've now got a, a book on Amazon. You're an author. No one can ever take that away from you once you're an author. You've written a book. So you're going to be spending time doing something over the next 18 months. Why not chip away at a book? All right, that's it. He's convinced me. <laughs> this time next year, Scorecard Marketing Done Better by Dan Murray Zerta. <laughs> Go. I'm totally fine with that. Go for it. <laughs> um, okay, so what's the last thing you bought for yourself? Why did you buy it? And do you recommend I buy it? I'm, I'm not really a thingy person. Um, I'm... I, could very happily survive with just two suitcases. Um, I have everything I want or need uh, times 10. Uh, so really the stuff that I buy, the significant purchase I made recently was um, 10 coaching sessions from a business coach who I look up to and respect and admire. It's a guy who sold his company for over 150 million and learned a lot along the way. And in particular had partnered with private equity to, to do a lot of his transactions. And I wanted to get that specific domain knowledge. It was great. I it was very expensive, booked 10 sessions. Um, and it's been wonderful, been really, really good. I'd recommend it. I've just done the same thing. Um, I've just splashed out for myself on a single session, but a single session with someone that I really look up to admire, had loads of questions and just thought, you know what? I'm going to guess this for the next year. I might as well just save myself. That is the definition, I think, in entrepreneurship of time is money. If you can save up and afford the thing that actually is going to save you the time to get you to the next level, you might as well just spend it and do it. And it's quite a freeing thing because once you've done it once, you realize how uh, intelligent a decision that actually is because you can psychologically talk yourself out of it logically very easily, right? But it's actually proven to be already valuable to me and I'm hoping exponentially so. I think there's something magic about paying for someone who is further along than you. By virtue of the fact that you're paying means that you'll exercise more discernment and it means that you're li likely to act upon you know, the advice. So you're not going to listen to anyone because you're not going to just pay anyone. And you're, if you are going to pay, you're going to do. You're going to act off the back of it because it'd be too painful not to. So there's something pretty magic about that. And in the same way you might hire someone in the company to do a job, hiring someone who's achieved the result that you want and has you know, being able to, you know, talk about it sensibly, uh, as you say, it can save you 12 months of heartache. And in my case, I think it already has. Would you rather grow 10 great startups or build one unicorn? Definitely, definitely one unicorn. Yeah. <laughs> well, a unicorn is a great startup that was in the right place at the right time with the right funding. So it's not like you can choose to grow a unicorn. You can't sit there and say, oh, I'm going to do a unicorn today. Hmm, should I do a little lifestyle business? Should I do a fish and chip shop or should I do the next Google? Um, obviously, you've got to be in the game to do something that scales and that, that becomes very valuable. But realistically, a, a unicorn is a great startup that had all the right things, uh, you know, market conditions and funding 
uh, you know, at that time. Essentially, you get the exact, you put the same inputs in, but you get a much bigger output because you are lucky. The reason I would love to do a unicorn is because I'm doing the work anyway. So if it was in the right time and the right place, why not, uh, why not get 10 times or 20 times the result for the same effort? Very fair. So what's the worst business advice you hear people give to founders? <laughs> the, probably the worst business advice is just quit your job and go start a business. Starting a business is something anyone can do, theoretically, but realistically, there are a number of steps that normally would come first. And one of the best steps uh, before starting a business would be to go and work for another founder, to go and do one or two years in a small business where you work at arm's distance from a founder who's already you know growing a business and who has a fast growth business especially if you've previously worked in a corporate if you've been working in a corporate you have no idea how lucky you are to have a brand and channels of distribution and a sales team and an IT department and all of these things that make that corporate work and a hundred years worth of development that's gone into it and all of that origin story that you just take completely take for granted um, and then you go off and start a business and you go, hey, well, this is a lot harder than I thought. You need to do a year or two working in a company that has less than 12 people. When a business has less than 12 people, you can pretty much see what every single person does. You can see the dashboards. They're very, very transparent little organizations. You need to have a look and, and actually be hands on with a business that does a couple of million of revenue rather than a couple of hundreds of millions or billions of revenue if you've worked in a corporate. Essentially, people who just start companies without any training, they're just assuming that the founder skill set is just a completely basic set of skills. It's not a basic set of skills. It's a very advanced set of skills to be a founder. Uh, you gotta juggle a lot into existence. So assume that you don't have those skills uh, if you've worked in a corporate. If you're trying to grow your startup and you're dealing with companies outside of the UK, you're probably going to need ISO 27001 at some point. It's not the sexiest acronym, but it's basically the global standard for proving your security practices are up to scratch, like how you handle customer data. The same goes with SOC 2. You're going to need it if you're a SaaS company. But achieving these security frameworks can be very tedious and very costly. This is where our partner Vanta comes in. Vanta automates up to 90% of the work for certifications like ISO 27001, SOC 2, GDPR, HIPAA, and more, getting you audit ready in weeks instead of months, and saving you up to 85% of the cost. And as a special offer, our listeners get 20% off Vanta. Just head to vanta.com slash secretleaders. That's V-A-N-T-A dot com slash secretleaders for 20% off. There's a link in the description. Look, you know I'm fascinated by AI, but until the machines take over, there's only one thing that's going to determine your company's fortunes. People. This isn't some kind of hollow point to make me look good. If you speak privately to any successful entrepreneur, they'll confirm it's true. So, if you're a leader of a growing business, then you should check out Personio. It brings together all the important HR things like hiring, onboarding, payroll data, performance reviews, and so on. You don't want loads of employees sending you emails asking for time off. You want to be able to see things objectively, like it's taking you too long to hire. You want to do performance reviews well, having clear goals for people that are logged in a centralized system. And you want to do all these things in one simple tool without having to become an HR expert. All of this is possible with Personio. 
Check it out at personio.com forward slash secret leaders. That's personio.com forward slash secret leaders. There's a link in the show notes. So Secret Leaders started in 2017. Um, and in many ways, we're kind of early to the podcast scene because, you know, now everyone has a podcast. And when I tell people I have a podcast, I feel everyone just rolls their eyes. Whereas in 2017, people are like, oh, that's cool. I hadn't heard of that before. Is that a thing? Back in a very early version of Secret Leaders, where I was just sort of recording some mates in boardrooms to see if anyone would listen, episode nine Enter stage left, famed entrepreneur and author Daniel Priestley Amazing. walks in and gives us a little masterclass of his life and lessons up to date. So what I don't want to do in this episode is rehash a bunch of stuff that that was your story then, it's your story now. And you'd already written, I think, three books by that time. So no worries on whether your narrative is better now or then. You'd honed it pretty well. Obviously, for some guests, I might be like, yeah, you probably don't want to listen to that old one. That was garbage then. They've got a lot better at public speaking. With you, not so much the case. It's stayed at a consistent high level from then till now. So instead, what I want to talk about is... Um, is, is where you are now. Like, what have you been doing since then? And really, like, how has your perception of entrepreneurship and what what skills entrepreneurs need to survive in this world, like, how that stuff has changed? Because entrepreneurship, you know, Entrepreneur Revolution, obviously the first book, and I think there's even a mention of artificial intelligence in that book. Yeah. Now, if you'd have written that book today, <laughs> my first question is, what would you be talking about? Well, it's funny because I am actually signed to rewrite the book. Um, so the publisher has asked me to do a revised edition in a post-AI world and um, to address some of the things that have changed. Um, isn't it incredible? We spoke in 2017. It feels like forever ago, right? That feels like just an entire world ago. The pandemic happened and technology changed things and businesses all went online. And there's been an entrepreneur revolution. When I wrote the book Entrepreneur Revolution, uh, it was a weird idea that everyone would be an entrepreneur, that, that people would have side hustles, that we would have global small businesses. Um, I talked a lot about AI in 24 Assets and Entrepreneur Revolution. I was an early investor in one of the first AI companies called Copy.ai. Um, I bought the artwork that's hanging behind me here, which is an AI robot that was one of the very first AI robot artists um, that has you know traveled all over the world, has hung art in, in top galleries. Um, it looks like something my daughter did at kindergarten. I'm sure you didn't just rip her off. <laughs> it was an early stage. They're getting better. You know, so I have, I have this passion. There are certain things that won't change about entrepreneurship. So the entrepreneurial journey is actually quite predictable. And people think of it as an unpredictable journey, but it's very, it goes through a set of predictable steps. And the sooner you can go through those steps, the faster you can build a business. So, um, for example, uh, in my household, we play with a lot of Lego because uh, I've got young kids. And if you follow the instructions, as frustrating that as that is, and you build block by block and brick by brick, you end up with exactly the same thing as the front of the box. And it looks incredible and you feel proud of it, um, but you end up with something that is correct. It actually it builds out. Uh, it's the same with entrepreneurship. There are a set of steps, and if you follow those steps, you actually build out a business very rapidly. So I'll, I'll quickly run through some of those steps. There is ideation. Ideation. There is actually a process be between coming up with a good idea and a bad idea. There are principles for good ideas and principles for bad ideas. Um, there are ideas you should go after and there are ideas that are just uh, silly ideas or bad ideas and it's great to have bad ideas the more bad ideas you have the more good ideas you'll have in the same way the more bad songs a songwriter writes the more hits they're going to have so um, there is a process of ideation of coming up with ideas and finding the right ideas and testing the right ideas and then once you've got an idea 
there's minimum viable product where you're going out and seeing if you can build an audience and see if you can get signals of interest from the marketplace and see if people will put down a small deposit or if they'll join a waiting list. And you can do that without spending a lot of time or money or quitting a job or any of those sorts of things. So minimum viable product testing uh, is, a, is an exceptional uh, skill set. Um, after that, there's something called product market fit where the marketplace loves what you're doing and they say, two thumbs up, we want you to build this, we want you to go with this. And actually, every time you go out and sell it, you don't get refunds, you don't get people complaining, you get people loving the product and referring the product and saying that they intend to buy more or refer more. Um, so you've got product market fit. After that, you've got go to market where you actually fire up all the jets and you build a sales team and a marketing team and you run ads and you do SEO and you tell the market what you're up to and you shout about it from the rooftops and you're actually trying to scale the business up. You're trying to get the business really going up, uh, you know, going to market. After that, you then scaling, where you're trying to go into multiple territories, multiple markets, um, and then you're either exiting or you're acquiring, um, go into that next more mature phase of business. So there are these predictable stages that you go through. Each one has its own disciplines, its own suppliers, its own best practices. And what we need to start doing is looking at entrepreneurship as a series of predictable steps, um, much like the aviation industry. In the early days, it was trial and error. Some people got off the ground, but most people didn't. We need to evolve to where it's really predictable that businesses get off the ground, they become successful, um, and they grow and they develop, and that people are giving it their best shot and following best practices in order to succeed in business. So I teach entrepreneurship. I've got an accelerator. I lecture as a guest lecturer at universities around the world, but also I build companies. I've built several different businesses. I've, I've launched about seven different ventures that have gone zero to a million in their first 12 months. I've done three businesses over 10 million of value. It, most recently, ScoreApp has gone from an idea to a 20 million pound business in about two and a half years, uh, multi-million pound revenue, deci-million valuation. Um, and how did we do it? We just followed a set of steps. And we actually genuinely went through and started following steps. So um, specifically, we tested the concept, we tested the audience, we got the offer right, we sat and did face-to-face -face sales with our customers and understood why they buy, what their fears are, what their concerns are. We Like before I built the technology, literally sitting side by side, shoulder to shoulder with people, talking to them about making a purchase and, and, and selling to them um, before we even tried to formalize a landing page or a, or a video or any of that sort of stuff. I, I did probably a hundred sales meetings. So I went through those steps and then we went and um, perfected the pitch, raised a little bit of money. I wrote a book that would allow it to scale. I then built a product ecosystem. So these are actually, when I rattle these off, the reason I can rattle them off is because these are the steps and we just went boom, 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 and we, we followed those steps. Mind you, this was also a side hustle. This is not my main focus. I've got other businesses as well. During that time, we did a couple of acquisitions in the other company that is at a more mature level and is growing through acquisitions. There was also an exit. I sold one of my companies during that period of time as well. So you could say, oh yeah, this is very academic, but, but this is actually also real life. I, I practically, uh, and you know, I go through these steps one at a time myself and do predictable buying and selling and exiting and growing through some playbooks. How did you go through an idea process and why did you land on ScoreUp? Like, how was that your best idea? 
you know, there are certain ideas that you just keep coming back to. You can't put them down. And you you park them and you put them on a little notes folder in your phone and you kind of add to them. And you think to yourself, I shouldn't be doing this. I've got plenty of other things to do. But you just get pulled back to this idea and, and you keep getting pulled back to it. So in the about 2015, I launched an online assessment. It was called the Key Person of Influence Assessment. It went with my book, Key Person of Influence. And essentially, when people would open up the book, it says to get the most out of the book, take this quiz, answer 40 questions, and it will tell you where you need to focus your attention and you'll get the most out of the book. Um, about 90,000 people ended up taking this quiz and about 15 million pounds worth of sales came directly from the quiz. So it was just this online pre-qualification, self-qualification, self-assessment tool that we built. It cost about 10 grand to build. It was about six weeks worth of planning, writing, developing, and then coding it into WordPress. But it was so worth it. It was one of our most successful campaigns. And it went on for year after year after year. For five years running, it just kept delivering warm qualified leads every single week and we would give away a copy of the book key person of influence people would open the book read that they should do the quiz do take the quiz read the book and this became our scalable sales methodology and it you know worked for a training company and um, pretty soon a few people cottoned onto this and our clients said can we get one of these as well and we used to build these um, custom build them on wordpress it worked really well for any service company where people have to almost self-diagnose whether they would benefit or not. Coaches, consultants, IT people, fitness people, relationships experts, all of those types of people, you know, these online signature assessments that, that you can have. So I got excited by the idea that it had worked well for us. And I kept talking to Steve Oddie, my co-founder at ScoreUp maybe there should be a scalable platform. Like, can you do this on Google Sheets? Can you do this on Typeform? And then we're saying, well, you can do elements of it, but you have to have your landing page on one place and you have to have the quiz somewhere else. And then you have to marry it up with dynamic results and a PDF report that comes out. And by the time you do that, you've got to cobble together five or six technologies and it's actually time consuming and expensive. Oh, we kept coming back to the idea, someone should just do this platform. Like it need, there, there should be an easier way to do this. And then we kind of went, well, maybe we'll build an easier way to do this. And we started messing around with the platform and we scoped out a plan. And the plan was landing page, data capture, dynamic results based on the data, and a PDF that writes based upon how you answer the quiz. So we basically built this as a platform with ScoreApp. And for two years, we went out and took this to market and told, told people about what a great tool it was. Signed up with, uh, about 1,500 people, maybe 2,000 people. Um, and it became, you know, a pretty decent little software product. And people were loving it and building leads and all this. But the biggest complaint was it takes hours. <laughs> it used to take weeks, but now it takes hours to do one of these, five hours to 10 hours. And then AI came along. So we plug in AI and suddenly it takes five minutes to build all of this. And the AI does all the coding and it does everything that you need. And it selects the images and it puts it all in the right place. And it's like, whoa. So now we've got thousands of clients. Uh, at last count, I think about 3,700 clients um, have come through and there's like something like a thousand on trial this month. Um, so it's growing exponentially, but it's kind of like an AI powered quiz engine. Let me tell you why I knew it was a good idea. It's recurring revenue. So you sell it once and then it becomes a valuable tool and people want to keep buying it every month because it's working and delivering value every month. So the recurring revenue nature is a good, good thing. So I knew that it was a recurring revenue business. I knew that it would be sticky with clients. I love software because I love any business where scale is um, decoupled from costs. So as you scale the business up, 
the costs don't uh, rise in lockstep. So if I want to build a fish and chip shop down the road, and then I want to open up a second one and a third one and a fourth one, I pretty much have the exact same costs of opening each new restaurant every time I want to grow the fish and chip shop chain. So I'm going to have to you know, get a new footprint and new employees and new fryers and heaters, food, food warmers and all those sorts of things. All of that is going to grow in lockstep. So what I'm looking for is business opportunities where the revenue line can take off but the costs can actually you know, stay fairly st uh, stable or that they don't take off anywhere near as fast. I'm looking for something that I'm passionate about. I, I ask myself the question, could I sit down and write a 30,000, 40,000 word book about this topic um, and be passionate about it? And the answer, if you know, because I, I really believe in, like you should write a book about the business that you're in. Um, so I'm always asking the question, would I be passionate enough to write a book about this? Uh, would I be passionate about enough to pitch it a thousand times? I think entrepreneurship is the journey of a thousand pitches. You are going to have to pitch this thing a thousand times. You better be passionate about it. So, you know, all of those things started to, to come together. And then we looked at talent. Uh, if we want to build this, are we going to be able to find the people who can build this? And it's like, yeah, okay. And the exploring of the idea, we're checking off all of those kind of boxes. I guess like one of the things I want to understand as well is, you know, the the, the aspect of scaling. So... You've talked a lot about, you know, how to pick an idea yeah, and also the things or, you know, the things that keep you motivated and interested about what you're doing, aside from writing books, which obviously I would say that's more of a B2B tactic as well. Like it's a really powerful B2B tactic. I would argue it's a virtually useless B2C tactic, not, not a useless personal brand endeavor, but you have to have an exceptional hit, I would argue, to make any impact. Um, really? you have to have multiple multi-prong approach. You're gonna to have to have a YouTube channel, you're gonna to have to have some podcasts, you're gonna have some books, uh, you're gonna have Facebook ads, Google ads, YouTube ads, Amazon ads. You're going to essentially find, you're gonna to have to throw a lot of mud at the wall and see what sticks. And you're going to have to keep doing that. And you'll have to also find at what point do you hit the diminishing returns. So for example, on Amazon ads, you might be able to spend five grand a month comfortably, but 10 grand a month starts to waste money. Uh, you might find with your Facebook ad strategy that you can spend 10 grand a month, but it gets harder to spend 20 grand a month effectively. So you've got to look at those sorts of things. You might find that certain influencers, like really well-selected influencers, sell a ton of product, but if they're just slightly wrong, it just doesn't work. So you have to you have to try a number of strategies and kind of almost juggle it into existence. The other incredibly frustrating thing with scaling a business is that you do all of these things and on the surface, a bunch of them look like they're not working. And they're just kind of like you can't track the direct sale on the day. And then just randomly some sales start coming in and you can't track them. And you're not quite sure where they're coming from, but you know something you're doing is working out there in the marketplace. And it's you're not sure what you can switch off. <laughs> you know, what what's working, what's not working. And you kind of, there, there's this kind of network effect that's just magically happening in the background. Okay, so... Is this the fastest experience of feeling like you've got something right that you've experienced so far? Is this what product market fit feels like most obviously to you? Uh, this is the best business. Um, my first business when I was 22, 23, it really took off fast. We went zero to a million year one. And then by year three, we did like 10 million. We got to a million a month of revenue. And um, and I, re I did 174 events. Uh, it didn't feel sustainable. It felt like we were just working our gutses out all the time. And it didn't feel like, it felt like it was going to implode all the time. It just, 
there was just this ominous feeling that there's no way we can sustain this. Um, it was too taxing on our team. It was, um, it was, it was forced growth. Um, there was so much push and not a lot of pull going on. Whereas score app has become a really good balance of we push the door and it flings right open. And then we walk a little bit further and we push the next door and it flings right open. Um, so there's push and pull, uh, the, the, you know, a lot, almost half of the people <coughs> who join score app, uh, as a customer have been referred by someone else that like they've, they've come in through someone who's a happy customer. Um, so that kind of growth is amazing. And, um, and to build a business that, you know, feels scalable. Obviously, the revenue we're still in the like, um, you know, seven figure revenue. Uh, whereas the other business got to eight figure revenue very rapidly, um, but it feels a lot more sustainable and scalable this time. Oh, smaller tickets too, right? Yeah, exactly. The quality of earnings report says that you know, you know, it's diversified across twenty five different countries and thousands of customers across hundreds of industries. <laughs> so um, it's it's yeah, extremely robust uh recurring revenue um okay are you working on a book currently uh yeah i so the book that just came out is scorecard marketing right so that one is i basically took all of the insights for running these scorecard marketing campaigns and how to build them and i put that into a book and we've given away ten thousand of those and i had to do a revised edition within a couple of months because ai came out between writing it and um and releasing it so we've done a revised edition now the next book that I'm writing is called Doubling Speed, and it is about how we organize our team and the guiding principles for growing a very fast growth company. Um, but I'm not going to release that one until ScoreUp hits 100 million of, uh, of, of value, probably an, an exit. I would like to start that. I think it's important to start a book like that with an impressive uh, story that says, this works, we used it ourselves. So I'm holding that book back. I've written about 30,000 words of it. And it's actually been really cathartic and informative for me to formalize my approach. So I have formalized that I have five A's uh, at the center of how we organize our team, aligning the team, dealing with awarenesses, uh, accountabilities, weekly activity, having a perfect repeatable week, um, and building and developing assets. So those are my five A's. And then there's these 10 questions that are really important questions that we come back to. Um, things like what's our purpose beyond making money and how do we delight uh, our customers and all these sorts of things. So um, we've got these 10 questions that, or 10 principles. So the book will ideally start with, hey, we just sold the company for 100 million or the company's worth over 100 million. Um, and then it will go, here's how we did it. These are the, these are the 10 principles and these are the five A's um, as to how we organize the team and how we thought about the, the building the business. Um, and how we built a business that just doubled every year on year on year until it was worth 100 million. And um, and essentially, I, I'd love to go open book and basically say, here's our year one, and here's our year two revenue, and here's our you know here's what we did, and these are the kind of things we did in year you know th this is how we got product market fit, and here's how we did scale, and here's how we did data enrichment and segmentation, and here's how we sold new products, and here's how we did an acquisition, and why we did an acquisition. So all of that, I'll, I'll put that in the book, but I kind of. Don't want to release that one until I've got a whopping big result. Okay. I want to know from you as a teacher of entrepreneurship, what's the best advice that you could give us? The, the best advice I would have is get into alignment with your team that you need to, you know, you need to see this as a team sport and you can't do this on your own. You have to do this with others. If you're technical and you can build a great product, you're going to need people to run around selling it. 
And if you're great at talking about something, you're gonna need people to build it. And if you want great customer service to your customers, you're gonna need people who believe in the business and who wanna see the business succeed. So this magical ingredient is alignment, getting everyone into alignment, making sure that everyone's pointed at the same thing. You wanna be able to tap every person on the shoulder and say, you know, what is it that this business is trying to do three years from now, 90 days from now, one month from now? And everyone kind of has a great answer for that, knows exactly what we're trying to do three, you know, they, they all sound the same. Um, the other thing I would say is data because you can have hunches and gut feels that are correct, but you can also have plenty of hunches and gut feels that are off and that it just they're just not aligned. And when the data sometimes reveals something to you about what the customers are doing with your product or the way that they're interacting or the way they're thinking about the product or the problem that they're trying to solve, you wanna have that data as soon as it's available. And you wanna make decisions based upon having that data. And data adds another magical ingredient where, where you're making decisions that are not just based on like shooting from the hip, but it's kind of like very precise. You can say, hey, the data tells us this is the right decision. And then we can go all in on it straight away and we can get it right. So the, the magical ingredient is get the people and the team totally aligned and get the data and the dashboards nice and clear and giving you good, clear signals. Beautiful answer. What about the best advice you've ever been given? Uh, the best advice I was given, not, not necessarily directly, but indirectly through, through visual or through show um, rather than tell, is the power of the personal brand, the power of the founder brand. So when I look at some of the early entrepreneurs that I was following, they didn't specifically say, I'm trying to be a founder brand or I'm trying to lead with my founder brand or I'm trying to create this magical ingredient of the founder. They just went out and did it. They represented their company from the front. They were the spokesperson. They were delivering the big pitch. They were writing the books. They were putting content out into the marketplace. So Richard Branson, classic example, you know, he's happy to be the face of Virgin. He writes books about it. He tells you his ups and downs. He He's in the media. He's writing columns in the media. He's, you know, trying things that sometimes work and sometimes don't. So he's that personal brand. And there were so many examples of this when I was coming up as an entrepreneur that I witnessed up close and also from a distance. And what I discovered is that this is a seriously underestimated valuable asset for any business. If you can get a per, if you can get the right founder brand, if P, if you get a founder who's really willing to stand out the front of their business and talk about it and be that personal brand and not say look at me, but say look at this, look at this trend, look at this problem that we're solving, look at this idea that we want to share. And if you can be that passionate person who's doing that, you can have a, a profound effect on the value of the company. Um, and the obvious big example is Steve Jobs. Steve Jobs was up against Hewlett and Packard and he was up against IBM and he was up against you know all of these businesses that were big faceless tech companies IBM being the big one if you think back to his IBM big brother speech in 1984 where he pits Apple against IBM and he he says that you know in a kind of David versus Goliath uh, speech that he gives and here he is this young guy he's in his 20s at the time and he's standing out there in front of this audience of people and he is the differentiator. He's the thing that we're buying into. He's the thing that we're excited about. And he's taking us on the journey. So IBM are sitting there with all these products and all these patents and all these intellectual property lawsuits and all this sort of stuff. Who is IBM? Where is the, where, where, who's Mr. IBM? Who's the CEO? Nobody knows. 
And then along comes Steve Jobs and just disrupts and brings us all with him. It's a profound impact on the business and people should not be afraid to be that for their company. The world is going to look very different in 10 years with the rise of AI. We all know that. So if you were entering the workforce now, what career advice would you hope to receive from someone that's as wise as you that's going to help set you on the right path for success? Well, for starters, I'd start using AI every day. I'd be talking to ChatGPT constantly and I would have it on my phone. I'd pay the $20 a month uh, to, to have access to it. I'd be exploring new AI tools um, and just be embracing the change, surfing the wave um, or learning to surf the wave. Um, and there are going to be uh, three key distinctions that are going to become more and more the difference between the haves and the have-nots. So distinction number one is that creating versus consuming. So AI has two superpowers. Superpower number one is that it forces you to consume more than you intended to consume. TikTok is a great example of that. You intend to spend 10 minutes on it, you spend an hour on it, or two hours or three hours or four hours. So it forces you to consume more than your intention. But AI has another superpower, which is the ability to get you to create more than you intended. So the ability to create stuff at speed, much faster, much better. Uh, so you have to be able to draw a line in the sand and say, I'm going to use this to create stuff. I'm not, going to be uh, I'm not going to be manipulated into consuming stuff. So that would be distinction number one. Distinction number two is vitality versus functionality. So functionality is the ability to perform tasks reliably. Vitality is the ability to breathe life into something. If you take a magician, a magician has functional tools to create magic tricks. They have a fake thumb and they have a hat that has a secret compartment. Those are all functional things. But a magician is the person who brings life to that. They actually do the magic trick. They make it feel like magic. And just simply having a fake thumb or having a hat that has a contraption in it doesn't create the magic. It's the magician that creates the magic. And you have to be the magician. You have to get good at this new skill called breathing life into something. I know that sounds weird because our entire schooling system is about functionality, not vitality. In fact, they beat the vitality out of you. The functionality is going to be taken care of but we still need people to breathe life into things. We need people to talk about it and joke about it and connect random dots and to prompt the AI and to provide insights around it. And then the final um, key distinction that we need to be aware of um, is the difference between content and context. So content is what AI does super well. It creates all the content, but the context is why are we doing it? You know, what's the bigger picture? Where does this fit into the world? AI is not very good at understanding the context. It'll just produce anything you ask. You have to be the one who says, the reason I'm asking this is because I'm gonna go and do this incredible thing. So you might say, uh, I wanna build a group of services companies and I wanna acquire an anchor platform company and then acquire 12 other companies with a combined revenue of 100 billion. That's the context. Now use AI to write emails, to do contracts, to do legals, um, to do structuring advice. So once you know that you have a context, AI does an amazing job of the content. Those are the three big distinctions that I would encourage people to be aware of. Perfect answer. What else can you expect from a professor? Uh, professor, author, professional speaker, bullshitter, <laughs> all of the things. Um, all right, fresh question for you. What is the most unexpected lesson you learned while running your business? I learned that a lot of people are really motivated by money um, and that they will sacrifice their morals and their friendships. I've had experiences where it shocked me that someone was willing to do the wrong thing for a couple of hundred grand. So I had a business bust up a few years ago with a co-founder and I've thought about this deeply because I lost so much money in the transaction and um, 
you know, it, it was a really nasty experience. And to me personally, if the shoe was on the other foot, I personally was willing, would have been willing to sacrifice the money to, for the friendship. And I would have been willing to sacrifice the money for the, for the reputation and all of those sorts of things. For me, the money is not important. The, the friendship, the reputation, those things are important. But I'm quite shocked. I've had several experiences. And you have to live with yourself. Yeah. And well, I've also learned that people can justify anything they will absolutely be able to come up with a rationale. There's this great book that talks about the brain as like an elephant with a lawyer on top and the elephant crashes through gates and crashes through damaging things and then the lawyer explains why it was the right move. And um, and the lawyer's job is only to just argue for the actions of the elephant and it's a great analogy of how the human's human brain works. So I've noticed that people will justify anything but I'm actually shocked at how small amounts of money will massively allow people to say, you know what, I don't care about my morals or my principles or any of that sort of stuff because 10 grand's involved. And that, that's, that's perpetually a shock. All right, last question. If you could go back in time and give your younger self a piece of advice about achieving success, what would it be? A piece of advice I would give my younger self would definitely be work just as hard as you worked, but just get in the gym four times a week. The, the mental health benefits the physical health, um, the fact that you don't have other dependents or any of that sort of stuff, just make it an absolute must to get in there and lift heavy weights. Um, the times that the only times I really regret working so hard is when I put on a ton of weight and where I became unhealthy. And um, I look back at some of the photos of me during those times and I had the big jowls and no neck um, and I wasn't happy no matter how good things were, I wasn't happy if that got got destroyed. And purely and simply making a few better choices around diet and exercise, which wouldn't have taken me away from work, it would have actually made me able to work harder, would have would have been um, would have been great. And if someone had have explained it to me in those words that this will allow you to work harder, because uh, everyone said, oh, no, you need work balance, so I ignored them because I was loving my work. If someone said, no, no, this is the key to working harder, uh, you know, eat right and exercise would, would, would be a great thing. Dan, it's been a massive pleasure connecting with you again. Thank you for joining us on Secret Leaders. Um, I've learned a lot once again, so I hope listeners have too. Thank you for having me on here. It's been great. Thanks again to Daniel Priestley, a true entrepreneurial educator. And thanks for listening to this episode of Secret Leaders. Here at Mindset Win, we want to give you the tools to become better at what you do. Taking inspiration and wisdom from our guests, we will hear stories, strategies, tips and tricks. Told by leading names in sport and beyond. Who know what it takes to get to the very top. There will be two episodes each week packed with amazing stories and practical takeaways for us all to follow. Search for Mindset Win on YouTube and on your favorite podcast app. I've been your host, Dan Murray-Serta. The episode was produced by Ruth Edwards and Sol Harris. It was brought together by our head of podcast, Will Stolliman. Bye for now.